Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. And uh, this morning in London, there were knees being taken in um, the Jaguars and Baltimore were playing, so they were taking a knee there. And it's happened again uh, at the 1 o'clock start games. And the fans are unhappy. I was looking at some tweets from Tom Curran. He's the uh, Pats insider. And uh, he tweeted, Booze and chants of stand-up as the anthem begins with a few Patriots taking a knee in front of the bench. Then he continued, scattered yells continued during the anthem, demanding that those kneeling stop disrespecting the anthem. And then the third tweet was, and a cascade of booze as the anthem ends. So the... uh, The fans not thrilled with what the players are doing. Vocal opposition. 34, Rasmussen points out that 34% of NFL fans are less likely to follow the game and follow the league because of the protests. That was a poll of just two days ago. And uh, I was looking at some of the quotes from from some of the owners. And New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft This is a story from Global News. Um, New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft, who's been a strong supporter of the president, expressed, quote, deep disappointment with Trump on Sunday and said politicians could learn much from the unifying spirit of a competitive enterprise like professional football that succeeds from teamwork. He said, I'm deeply disappointed by the tone of the comments made by the president and uh, our players are intelligent, thoughtful and care deeply about our community and I support their right to peacefully affect social change and raise awareness in a matter that they feel is most impactful. Then there was the Miami Dolphins owner, Stephen Ross, who said of the players, these are young men of character who want to make the world a better place. Some of them are, and then there are the others. Like the 656 who were arrested between 2000 and 2014. 656 players arrested between the year 2000 and 2014. And there were trials and convictions even for murder. So we're going to talk about this developing issue in the National Football League. It's not just about the players. It's not just about Donald Trump. It involves fans. It's got so many people um, really literally globally talking. But what I want to do first is just go back to Alabama a couple of nights ago And here's what Donald Trump said. It's about two and a half minutes. Here's what Donald Trump had to say about NFL players who disrespect the national anthem and take a knee. He's going to say, that guy that disrespects our flag, he's fired. And that owner, they don't know it. They don't know it. They're friends of mine, many of them. They don't know. They'll be the most popular person for a week. They'll be the most popular person in this country because that's a total disrespect of our heritage. That's a total disrespect of everything that we stand for, okay? Everything that we stand for. And I know we have freedoms and we have freedom of choice and many, many different freedoms, but you know what? It's still totally disrespectful. And you know, when the NFL ratings are down massively, massively, the NFL ratings are down massively. Now, the number one reason happens to be that they like watching what's happening on, you know, with yours, Charlie. 
They like what's happening. This because you know today if you hit too hard, right? They hit too hard. 15 yards, throw him out of the game. They had that last week. I watched for a couple of minutes, and two guys just really beautiful tackle. Boom, 15 yards. The referee gets on television. His wife is sitting at home. She's so proud of him. They're ruining the game, right? They're ruining the game. Hey, look, that's what they want to do. They want to hit, okay? They want to hit, but, but it is hurting the game. But you know what's hurting the game more than that? When people like yourselves turn on television and you see those people taking the knee when they're playing our great national anthem. The only thing you could do better is if you see it, even if it's one player, leave the stadium. I guarantee things will stop. Things will stop. Just pick up and leave. Pick up and leave. Not the same game anymore, anyway. Now, one of the things we've done, and it, when I say we, it's us together. We protect religious liberty. Because we know that faith and family, not government and bureaucracy, are the true centers of American life. In America, we don't worship government, we worship God. And there's the President of the United States in Alabama about the National Football League and the players who disrespect the anthem and who take a knee. Players will say, we're doing this to protect our society, we don't like the way police violence takes place in our country, and we're doing something to stand up. And the fans, in large numbers, are saying, no you're not. You're prima donnas, you're self-serving, stand up and respect the national anthem. I have problems with players who will get up and they will start talking about how they know people who are in the military or they've had family members in the military because many veterans are particularly angry with the players. I read you the, uh, the letter that was sent to Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, by a retired Marine colonel. He didn't pull his punches. And many of the veterans are absolutely furious about the flag and the anthem being disrespected by players. So I want to talk to you about this at 800-263-2428, 800-263-2428. I really believe in the right of freedom of speech, or as we call it in Canada, constitutionally freedom of expression. It's hugely important, and it is under attack. So if NFL players have an issue with uh, what's happening in society, they have a forum. They are the forum. If they speak, if they speak to a reporter, if they appear on a television program or a radio program, and they make their case, they will be heard, and there will be response, and there'll be more interested people listening to them and watching them than if they take a knee while the anthem is being played or the, the flag is being displayed. Fans aren't happy. And the numbers from television ratings, down. And again, the Rasmussen poll shows 34% of Americans are saying they will pay less attention to the National Football League because of the disrespect to the National Anthem. 
My number is 800-263-2428, 800-263-2428. Is using the anthem and the flag to protest disrespectful and showboating and reducing the flag and the anthem to nothing more than a prop? And would you, would you take action against the players who are doing what they're doing? Uh, LeBron James called President Trump a bum publicly. Now, that may make people who hate Trump very smug, but it doesn't really do much for people who have minimal respect for athletes anyway. I just, I'm, just, I'm just fed up with anthems and, uh, and flags being used as props because I saw it in Quebec when I was there. We've seen it in this country when the anthem has been performed or sung in a language that wasn't of satisfaction to the people in the arena. If you're in an English part of Canada and the anthem was sung partly in French, there was booze. In Quebec, when the anthem was being played at the time that the separatists were really uh, an attractive option to Quebecers, people sat or they booed because they didn't like old Canada. What a bunch of cement heads. And these players live a very advantaged life. They live a very, very advantaged life. And they're disrespectful to their anthem and they're disrespectful to their flag, and it's just going to cause more issues and more problems. You've got kids in high schools, even grade schools, doing the same thing now because they're emulating their heroes. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Six months ago, we started talking about chronic pain and chronic pain patients, and I decided at that time that it was really time to investigate what was going on. I hadn't heard very much said. I'd heard the same company line parroted about an opioid crisis and about how people were dying and and the opioid medications were responsible. So we've spoken with the uh, editor of the uh, guideline for pain medications for opioids, Jason Busa, the uh, professor from McMaster University. We've talked to David Gerlink, who is one of the leading physicians as far as the issue is concerned. He's joined us from Toronto. We've spoken with patients in both Canada and the United States. We've talked to Dr. Lynn Webster, who's a leading pain physician in the U.S. who was being investigated by the Drug Enforcement Agency for four years because he was prescribing for patients. And then the DEA decided they would just drop the investigation. Why? Because Dr. Webster was doing what he was supposed to do, and that is take care of his patients. We've talked to families whose family members have committed suicide because they were being chased from pillar to post, and the opioid medications, which were prescribed, had been prescribed by doctors, were being denied them, and they couldn't live with the pain, so they committed suicide. We've talked to Canadians who have said that if their opioid medications are withdrawn or significantly arbitrarily reduced, they will ask for a physician-assisted death, based on Canadian law, and then their estate will be instructed to sue the College of Physicians and Surgeons of the particular province for wrongful death. One of my guests did that, informed the college of her decision, and magically, magically, her opioid prescription was restored. 
I wonder why that happened. There's a lot still to be covered and a lot we're going to cover. Next weekend, we'll be talking to a Canadian pain doctor who has said enough is enough. And he is taking care of his patients and he will step up. And I hope more doctors do the same thing. I've heard from doctors, Canadian doctors. I've talked to them and they've said, look, Patients are committing suicide in increasing numbers. I can't go on the radio and talk to you about this issue because I would be in serious trouble with my college and I'm not going to lose my license. And we've had patients tell us that their physicians have told the patient, I know I've prescribed this medication for you for years. I know that it works. I know that it's returned some quality of life, but I can't give it to you anymore because I'm scared of the college and I will not risk my medical license in order to provide you the medication that you require. There are statistics about deaths that are opioid-related. One was 865 deaths in 2016. I believe that was for the province of Ontario. It was called a crisis. That is not a crisis. 865 deaths is very, very unfortunate. It's sad. 38,000 people dying annually from tobacco-related illnesses that is a crisis. So what do they do about tobacco? Oh, they collect billions in taxes. Do you get what's going on? I could read you letters, emails that I received from both Canada and the United States, one after another after another, just this past week. One of the people I really, really like personally really like and respect in the health delivery chain as my pharmacist because she takes really good care of not only me but other patients takes really good care of farm of, of patients takes time takes care and now pharmacists are part of the chain investigating the chronic pain patients who are nothing, doing nothing more than asking for a continuation of their opioid medication so their quality of life remains somewhat acceptable. Greg Aberhardt is the registrar of the Alberta College of Pharmacists. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Aberhardt, thank you so much for the time. Afternoon, Roy. So what happens in Alberta starting October the 1st? If I'm a chronic pain patient, I walk into a pharmacy, I have a prescription from my doctor, and it's for opioids, what happens? Uh, that's very patient-dependent. Uh, let's start at the beginning, Roy. Pain is a very real thing. Pain is complex. The treatment of pain is complex, and there's many different reasons uh, for pain. And the experience with the pharmacist, or for that matter, with the medical practitioner, with respect to pain, needs to be individualized. Um, we know that uh, recent studies showed that of individuals who overdosed on prescription opiates within a specific period of time, 62% of them had seen their pharmacist in the past month. Pharmacists are just one of the health professionals of individuals' health teams who are concerned about their health, and in this case, pain being part of that health. And the pharmacist needs to work as part of that team in assisting the patient uh, to mediate the pain, but also to work with the team and the individual to ensure that other um, adversities uh, can be managed in their interest. What does that mean in English? Sorry, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be insulting, but I don't understand what you're saying. 
Sure. What it means is that the pharmacists care for each and in, each and every patient on an individualized basis right. as part of a team. Okay. And we have approved guidelines, and uh, amongst those guidelines, there's a very heavy emphasis on the pharmacist collaborating uh, with other members of the team to ensure that pain is managed appropriately. Are these the guidelines that came out of McMaster, the 2017 guidelines for opioid uh, pain relief uh, non-cancerous? The guidelines which uh, our council has approved yeah. are specific to the practice of pharmacists. Okay, so this isn't, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't Professor Boos's guidelines. Pardon? These are not Professor Boos's guidelines. No, they are not. They're your own. They are, these are our own guidelines respecting the practice of pharmacists. Okay, so who asked you to do this? Uh, we as a college have a responsibility to develop uh, standards and codes of ethics that guide our practitioners uh, in the way that they practice. We endeavored to do those in an evidence-informed way. And, so you decided. And I, would emph- I would emphasize that pharmacists are part of a health team. And yeah. No, no, I get that, but you decided. Nobody uh, asked you. Well, we have a responsibility. Our council has a responsibility to develop standards. Uh, that is established in legislation. Uh, and therefore, in being responsible to that legislation yeah. and to the public, it's important that we do that. Okay, so, um, but you decided. Nobody asked you to do that, right? Again, our responsibilities are okay. established in law, okay. and we have an obligation it. to the public to do that. I got it. A pharmacist's access in Alberta, as I understand it, is limited and based mostly on a patient's prescription history and not the full medical history. If that's the case, why would a pharmacist be permitted to quiz a patient in person and in personal detail about their chronic pain reality and their medication? Our standards of practice that were approved back in 2006-2007 based on new legislation, uh, which really expanded the scope of pharmacists in Alberta, uh, talks about the importance of assessing individuals and working with individuals to identify their health uh, priorities and to work with members of their health team to address those health priorities in a responsible way that uh, assists the individual achieve their health goals and to use health respect. Uh, wait, wait, hold, on, hold on a second, Mr. Eberhardt. You want to assist the patient to achieve the health goals. What the patient is trying to do is live pain-free or as much as possible. What the patient has has been able to do is obtain a prescription from a now terrified doctor over a period of years who's provided the uh, opioid medications who have allowed the patient to have a quality of life, and you're now going to place that in some degree of difficulty and jeopardy. Uh, I, I I think that's rather presumptive. I think how? the treatment of pain is very, very complex. No, how is it presumptive? Can you just let me uh, speak rather than interjecting? It's presumptive in the context that pain is very complex. The treatment of pain, depending on the origin of pain, is treated in different ways. There are many non-drug <sighs> interventions and lifestyle considerations that what must does be that considered mean? before... Uh, there are things like physical therapy. There are things like meditation. There are things Yeah, like but we're talking about somebody who comes to a pharmacy with a prescription that's written by a licensed medical practitioner. It is not up to the pharmacist to then say to the patient, well, what's your lifestyle like? What does this do for you? Why should you be taking then And then contact the doctor. It's not up to you to do that, or is it? Uh, that's a rather traditional way of thinking. Today, health care is delivered by teams. Pharmacists have a responsibility to contribute to the team and to the individual about the appropriate use of drugs. How many patients in this country have access to a team of healthcare professionals? 
Uh, I can't give you a number. Not Probably very I, few. I, I, you I would can, agree I, with that, no? I can tell you with confidence that the physician, the pharmacist, the nurses, whether they're located in a single center or whether they work together across a community, are part of the individual's team. Okay. Mr. Eberhardt, is it, true, is it true that Albertans may demand that all parts of their medical information be masked, meaning no one may look at that patient's file without the patient's permission on a case-by-case basis, the exception being clinically necessary, such as an ER emergency, perhaps. Is that true? There are provisions for masking in Alberta, and I won't go into the details and the specifics of how that masking is exercised. Uh, that is part of the approach. So the patient has the right to say, I don't want my medical history to be examined by this particular pharmacist. It is my right under Alberta legislation. I want it masked, right? Well, it could be. That also might put the pharmacist in a position where they are unable to assist that patient. So you, so you would, so the pharmacist would deny filling the prescription. If the if the patient doesn't tell the pharmacist what the pharmacist wants to know, then the patient could have the the the, the legitimate prescription written by a doctor refused. Um, I would say rather than just refused, I think when we're dealing with opiates, particularly somebody who's using them chronically, the answer is not to refuse a prescription. The answer is to have a responsible and informed discussion with the individual to understand the situation and alternatives that are, are available. As I understand it, the list of responsibilities of an Alberta pharmacist declares, and this is a point that I have from your regs, quote, providing a drug to or for a person pursuant to a prescription. In other words, your job is to provide my medication as prescribed by my doctor. There doesn't appear to be any ambiguity attached to that statement. I, I would suggest that uh, you are not reviewing our standards of practice holistically. You're not reviewing the legislation holistically. The roles and responsibilities of pharmacists are to work with individuals to address their drug-related needs, yeah. to collaborate with other health team members, and to make sure that drugs are used appropriately. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I got another email the other day about a 30-year-old woman who committed suicide because her opioid medications were withdrawn, 30 years of age. She couldn't live with the pain. Just could not live with the pain. I receive emails every day from people in the United States and Canada. They cannot live with the pain. And there's an agenda underway, and that's what it is, and doctors have said that on this program. There's an agenda about opioid medications and what affects generic drug addicts as far as drug abuse is concerned. That kind of the information that, 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 that um, pertains to the generic drug addict is often transferred to the pain patient or make it appear that the pain patient's the one with the problem when that is not the case. I wish I had a lot of time to discuss this with uh, Mr. Eberhard. Reg- Eberhard is the registrar for the Alberta College of Pharmacists. I have a lot of respect for pharmacists, Mr. Eberhard. I don't want you to misunderstand that. I have a lot more concern than I for, for the pain patient, though. And I want to ask you this. Does a pharmacist in Alberta have the qualifications to assess patient pain. You've said it's a very complex issue. So does the pharmacist who is going to be quizzing the pain patient have the qualifications to assess the patient pain and understand the beneficial nature of the opioids to the patient? Do they know? Think of this in, you know, some starting points, Roy. First of all, we do have pharmacists in Alberta whose entire practice is focused 
on pain management, uh, working collaboratively, collaboratively with other health professionals. We also know that there are tools that are very easily available just through interviewing, interviewing patients to try and understand things like their, uh, their, their health history and their potential susceptibility to uh, the possibility of addiction with drugs. We also know that there are very simple tools through interview with patients to understand the level of their pain, the extent to which it is changing. And it's also very simple to have a dialogue with a patient to understand what might have contributed to their pain, what the history of their pain has been. Those are all important parts of information to support the pharmacist, uh, build an understanding around the management of pain for the individual. I again want to emphasize that pharmacists work with the other health professionals and they add value to those discussions based on their insight and their knowledge about drugs. Their interest is not just about controlling the pain, but we also want to uh, work with individuals to make sure that adverse events and other risk factors that they may be exposed to because of the medications are managed. Why aren't you doing it with any other patients? You know that uh, uh, antidepressants are prescribed in huge numbers, far more than is necessary. You know that and I know that. Uh, why aren't you looking at antidepressants as well as opioids? Because they're often prescribed in tandem. What's, do you not see that it appears at least that there is discrimination toward the pain patient in action here, particularly since the, the, the college was not asked by anybody to develop these guidelines? I know what you've told me, but it's perception becomes reality for people. Perception well, becomes reality, and the perception is that the pain patient is being harmed. I think, I think uh, to be responsible in the context of the mandate that we've been given uh, by government on behalf of Albertans, uh, we need to be as proactive as possible. Once you wait for people to ask sometimes, it, it's after the fact. But when you have people who have been taking opioids for years that have been prescribed to them and they've helped them, why, 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 why interrupt the process? Well, again, that's why I said in the beginning that each and every patient needs to be addressed differently. The way that you address an individual who's been using opiates for a long period of time, as compared to somebody who's been newly introduced to opiates, is quite different. Mm. We know two things for a fact. And I've got 20 seconds, since, but go since, ahead. Since, since 2012, despite the opiate crisis that, that we're reading about in, in, in the gray media, mm. there's been a huge increase and the number of opiates prescribed in Canada. We also know that Canada is probably only second to the United States. But that's a good in thing. Context of opiate but that's a good thing. It's taking care of people. Not, not it's taking care. Why, why Mr. Eberhardt, I've, I've got to go. I have no choice because the satellite's going to cut us off. But I hope we can talk again. Sure. I hope you'll come back on the show because we're not going to stop talking about this issue. Thank you for the time today. Thank you. Greg Eberhardt, the registrar of the Alberta College of Pharmacists. We'll talk to our panel when we come back. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Barry Ulmer is the executive director of the Chronic Pain Association of Canada. He joins us from Edmonton. He's been on this program many times on the issue of chronic pain and the opioids. Barry, I don't know how you, for so long, have been able to retain your energy levels and work as hard as you have and as dedicatedly as you have. You're an amazing man. Thanks, Roy, but uh, it's... Uh 
been an awfully, and I hate to put it this way, painful journey, shall we say. Yeah, and it's getting more painful because they, as, as, as we're shining light on the dark side's agenda, they're becoming more desperate, and uh, they're, they're wobbling, and now they're, they're, they're reacting in ways that uh, I guess we could have predicted. Don Ray Downton is chronic pain patients. He's a freelance journalist nationally who's written on this issue, again, on a national basis, and has broadcast on it. And she has told us that she has a suicide plan in place if her medications, if her fentanyl, which has been prescribed for 12 years to help her with her massive pain, is suddenly uh, taken away or dramatically restricted by a doctor who's afraid of the college. And we had Dawn Ray on the air with her husband, Bob, and they talked about the fact that Dawn Ray has a suicide plan in place. I mean, for me to have a spouse on the air with another spouse, and that spouse is aware that his wife has a suicide plan that is totally unnecessary if they just left her alone, is absolutely um, it's, it's painful to listen to. Don Ray, you are also you're a, you're a, you're an amazing fighter, and thank you very much for being public about it. Thanks, Roy. I mean, I think that we all have to start speaking out about this. <laughs> you know, after hearing Doctor Everhart, it's even worse than I thought it was. So I'm glad to speak out, and I hope that other people will follow my example. Marvin Ross is a medical journalist. He writes for the Huffington Post or Huff Post Canada. He's done a, a tremendous job uh, writing about mental health, but he's made the chronic pain issue a primary focus now. And the first article that I read that you wrote, Marvin, was about the province of Ontario declaring war on pain patients. You have really, I mean, when your pieces just absolutely nail it and there's no escape route for the, for the dark side who are harming the patients. Well, let me start with you. When you heard the, uh, the registrar from the Alberta College of, uh, of Pharmacists, what were you hearing? Well, the first thing I heard was that he was well briefed by their PR people to stay on message. Um, he didn't really vary too much. Um, you really attacked him well, and he kind of stayed on message, uh, although, frankly, it's a stupid message. Uh, yes, pain is complex. We all know that. Uh, everybody has different types of pain. We all know that. Uh, he talked about the importance of a team effort, and nobody disputes that there should be a team effort, but in my mind, what that means is that if the doctor is concerned about the appropriateness and efficacy of a particular prescription, then the doctor should send the patient to a clinical pharmacologist to have everything evaluated privately, or the pharmacist should call the doctor and they should discuss the issues in private so it doesn't impinge and impose upon the patient. Um, he also said, we have a lot of tools in which to assess somebody's level of pain. Uh, I would really love to know what that is because the only thing I've ever seen is how's your pain on a level of zero to 10? That's the sophistication of pain tools. And the other thing that he said that I thought was absurd um, was there are other modalities. And, of course, he mentions mindfulness, and I think he mentioned physio. And, my God, patients have already gone through that, uh, and it doesn't work, and that's why they're on opioids. So I just see the whole thing as an effort for 
for pharmacists to cut out a little bit more for themselves in their standards of practice. And Don Ray, as I pointed out to Mr. Eberhardt, and he had difficulty dealing with it, and as Marvin said, went back to the talking points. Nobody, nobody asked this college of pharmacists to develop these guidelines of their own and then empower pharmacists to begin to quiz pain patients when the, the law in Alberta appears to say, to indicate that you, you can't do that. If the patient says, I want to be masked or I don't want my information to be discussed, that's it. That should be it. Yeah, I, I was struck by the, the coincidence, Roy, that nobody asked the pharmacists to put together guidelines, but here they are appearing just a few months after the McMaster guideline for opioid prescribing for non-cancer pain comes out. What a coincidence. Um, I, you know, I think what we're seeing here is that the nanny state is quick turning into a police state, particularly for disadvantaged people, for vulnerable people. These are chronic pain patients. They are disadvantaged and vulnerable. And I think that what we're going to see is more ruination of relationships that have been built, built up over time between chronic pain patients and their advocates and their doctors. Um, and I think that the last good relationship that chronic pain patients have is, w- is with a pharmacist that they know well, and that relationship is now going to be destroyed because uh, chronic pain patients are going to realize that their pharmacist has now some sort of insidious agenda and, and will not be able to, uh, we will not be able to deal with our pharmacists in the same way. I think it's very sad. I think it ties into a political agenda, a commercial agenda, and I think that chronic pain patients are in dire trouble. I, I am more upset after hearing Mr. Eberhard than I expected to be, so that'll tell you something. Yeah, that does. Barry Ulmer, Executive Director of the Chronic Pain Association of Canada. Barry, there's a feeling out there, out there generally, that nebulous out there, that chronic pain can't be all that bad, because a lot of people just related to, yeah, my knee's sore, my shoulder's sore, I have a headache now and then. Uh, muscle strain from working out, and that's what the pain is. And, of course, we have his brilliance, the boy king in Ottawa, uh, stating that, oh, chronic pain is just nothing but a minor annoyance, which to that effect. I wish he'd just play with his phone and stop talking about things he has no idea about. Uh, Barry, explain, please, what chronic pain does to people. You deal with these patients on a, on, a, on a daily basis, and then please assess what you heard from Mr. Eberhardt, because you're in Edmonton. He, he, your, your, your members in Alberta are now going to be dealing with pharmacists starting on the 1st of October on the basis we just heard explained. Yeah, Roy, like chronic pain is, is a pretty, um, uh, it is a complex matter, and it covers a lot of different things, but it's not something simple like having a headache for an hour or two and, and bypassing it. it. It affects a person's whole life, his whole body, and everything else. It affects everything around him, the things he or she is able to do or not do, and, and even the way they're looked at. I guess by pharmacists. I mean, we get calls all the time about how people go into the pharmacy to get their prescription refilled for their opioid. They're treated like dirt. Uh, I just heard the other day, so I find Mr. Eberhardt disingenuous, as I've found him in the past to be totally disingenuous when he went through this same thing with them and and the uh, uh, the reward programs that that they want to restrict uh, patients from getting rewards for their prescriptions, and they've been successful at doing that at great expense to the pharmacist. But anyways, he's disingenuous. Uh, I just had a call the other day, as I said, 
from a person who went to uh, their doctor, got a prescription for Suboxone, went into the knowledgeable pharmacist, I guess, and, and all these pharmacists across the province are knowledgeable about pain, handed in the Suboxone uh, prescription and was immediately told, well, you know, this is only for drug addicts. So how do you think that patient at that time felt? Yeah. When he talks about teams, yeah. I would like to know what teams he's talking about. Yeah. I, I know basically three pharmacists that I, in, uh, that I uh, know that really know much about pain, and I'm, I'm lucky to have one of them that has gone out of his way to do that. But pharmacists in this province and across the country don't know what chronic pain is, don't understand it, and even judge you as you come up to the counter if you're not dressed properly or, or you look grubby or something of that nature, you're automatically uh, uh, put into the category of, of drug addict, which again is, is bad. He's <laughs> an attack on, on that aspect of it, which is wrong as well. So when he talks about teams, he's just being totally disingenuous as he has been in the past. You know, and we have to take a break, but we'll come back. And I, the, the, the one word that you're, or at least the, the term that you used that has to be repeated is drug addict. There's so, so many pain patients when they correspond with, with any of us. Uh, and Don Ray, you've talked about it as well. You're, you're, you're viewed as, or you're made to feel as though you're a drug addict because you have, you're, you're looking to have a prescription filled. And I can't tell you how many people have sent emails and said, I just feel terrible. I want to go in. I, I just want to disappear when I go into the pharmacy. I don't want anybody to even have an idea of what I'm, what I'm picking up. All they're getting is medication that was prescribed for by a doctor, and yet they're made to feel as though they're part of the criminal element of Canada. Awful. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. This is I received from uh, from the United States, and I'll just use her first name. Hello, Roy. My name is Keisha. I'm 36 years old, and I received my first prescription of Percocet in 2011. It was given to me to manage the pain of endometriosis. Endometriosis is when the lining of our uterus grows in other places in our body. The misplaced tissue swells every month with blood the way it's supposed to in a uterus. This causes excruciating pain. I assumed a hysterectomy would end any pain or end my pain. If I don't have a period, I shouldn't hurt anymore, right? Wrong. I had a hysterectomy in 2012, had my tubes removed in 15, had yet another laparoscopic surgery in 17. However, I no longer get the small relief I had from Percocet. I've lost track of how many endosisters have taken their own lives since the doctors stopped prescribing us pain medication. I understand they don't want us addicted or overdosing. What they don't understand is how bad our pain is. Everyday pain, it radiates. Sometimes it feels like being stabbed with a hot poker. Other times it feels like I did 100 sit-ups the day before, and on top of that, the soreness my stomach wants to knot up and twist. It's agonizing. I attempted to take my own life to end the pain. I was hospitalized for three days. I'm in therapy now. I haven't worked since 2014, and prior to that, I lost three different jobs due to today's mist or going home early. Over-the-counter pills like Aleve and Tylenol don't help the least little bit. I have stomach ulcer and cannot take ibuprofen. I really appreciate this article. It's a piece I read. It's on my blog, Roy Green Show page on Chorus. I hope something can be done for people with chronic pain. I suffer from endometriosis, intestinal cystitis, patellar tracking dysfunction, my kneecap doesn't stay in place, and sciatica pain. That's a nightmare. And she's not getting meds. Just wanted to read that. Don Ray, is something you wanted to say? 
Well, what I, well I'll say this now. Um, I, I am in constant touch with a lot of, uh, of chronic pain patients who live in the U.S., and they're about a year ahead of where we are in Canada, but Canada is following close behind. Um, CVS is a pharma, it's the biggest pharmacy chain in the States, and recently they have advised that in addition to counseling pain patients, which is coming to us in Alberta anyway, uh, at the beginning of next month, that they are also going to be limiting um, pain prescriptions to a seven-day fill. So if you're a chronic pain patient who is used to getting at least a month's uh, prescription, in Canada, generally doctors prescribe in, in quarters, in, in three-month periods. So if you're used to getting your medications at least monthly or three-monthly, every three months. Now you have only seven days and then you have to go back. It seems to me that it becomes an access problem for a lot of people, as it will in Canada. If I have to be counseled every time I go to pick up a pain prescription, that means that I can no longer send Bob. Um, He often goes for me now. I could go myself, but, you know, I'm lazy. But what if I were in the position of not having pain meds that make me able to go there um, and and I and my family member can't go and pick it up. For You're me out of luck. I mean, there's there are hideous problems. Yes. With this. Patients are being profiled at pharmacy counters. This is only happening to pain patients. Why? Why, Marvin? Why? Uh, you've got me there, quite frankly. But I think that uh, when I think about it, I don't think that the guideline authors really understand chronic pain. Um. Because I, I'm getting the sense that they think that mostly it's low back pain. Not that low back pain is any more benign than any other pain. But you've been talking to people, this email uh, from somebody with endometriosis, that's not amenable to uh, physiotherapy or mindfulness or chiropractic that the chiropractor Jason Busey suggests. Um, people have have interstitial cystitis, which is extremely painful. Uh, Kath, the late Catherine, who unfortunately passed away, who was on your show, um, she had a blood disorder. Um, those are the causes of pain, and I don't think they've ever really considered that there was anything more than low back pain. Mm-hmm. And I have to think when... Someone like Jason Busey tells you, as I believe he did, that opioids aren't really that effective. Um, Think of a battlefield with wounded soldiers. They're all screaming for morphine, and the medic is rushing out to give them morphine, not to counsel them on mindfulness, (laughs) but to give them a shot of morphine because it works. And just because they get a shot of morphine, and probably a great deal more subsequently, does not mean they're becoming addicted. No. Um, Let me just ask a quick question and just check the clock. We only have a few seconds left. Barry, uh, after what you heard and what you know and what you see going on, are pain patients in this country in North America in greater peril than ever? Oh, without a without a doubt, uh, Roy. There's there's no two ways about it. It seems to be everybody wants to get on the bandwagon, and I guess I have a real problem with with the policymakers these days too. They don't pay attention to any of this because, of course, they don't want to get involved, 
and let these uh, organizations like the, like the CPSA and, and the Pharmacists Association, who have no oversight, allow a few zealots to take over what they're doing, yeah. and then that takes ruins the whole thing. And that's why people right. are, are, are the way they are. Barry Almer, Executive Director of the Chronic Pain Association of Canada, Don Ray Downton, chronic pain patient. She's a freelance journalist who's written on this issue nationally. You can find uh, on, in the Globe and Mail, one source. Marvin Ross, medical journalist for HuffPost Canada. He's made chronic pain an issue of priority, which we're all glad for because so many people are being hurt. And remember, you could be next. You could. Barry, Don Ray, Marvin, thank you very much. Thank you, Roy. Thank you. are listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. And the Fraser Institute's report on Canada's universal health care system and how it compares to other universal health care systems globally is out. And joining us on the program on the Chorus Radio Network is the author of the report, um, and uh, Bacchus Barua is the Associate Director of Health Policy Studies at the Fraser Institute. Um, is it Dr. Barua? No, it's just Mr. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, I also want to make sure that I got this correctly. So, uh, Mr. Barua, when we look at our health care system in this country, we hear individual stories that are of great concern. Wait times, uh, procedures not done appropriately, um, just a lot of issues that shouldn't be part of a universal health system because essentially it's all we have. This is it. We don't have many options as individual Canadians to choose the kind of health care that we want and where we're going to get it. It's just not there for us. So when you look at the universal health care delivery system in this country and you compare it with the other countries in the world, and I think there were, you found 29, is it 29 countries? We did. We, we compared Canada to 28 other countries okay. with universal health care. So when you look at that, when you look at how much mo- money Canada uh, invests in universal health care, how do we come out? Where, where are we in the, in the rankings? You know, it's, it's important as, as patients, as, as caregivers, as, as taxpayers, as Canadians to you know, continuously gauge our health care system because, as you said, it's, it's the only option that we have. Um, and unfortunately, when we do do that comparison, when we look at 29 countries with universal health care, and there are you know, at least 28 other high-income countries out there to compare ourselves with, we find that we routinely rank amongst the top spenders. But when we look at performance, when we look at the availability, the use of resources, the access to resources, and, and the quality, our performance is at best mediocre, and on a lot of indicators, we are doing remarkably poorly. So massive imbalance between what we're spending and what we're actually getting back in return. So in spending, if you look at it as a percentage of GDP, we are right there in the top three. We're only behind Switzerland and France, right? Yeah. Um, so we look to at two indicators of spending um, because, you know, people have different ideas about, about what they'd like to look at. But the thing is, when we're looking at it as a percentage of GDP, um, we're in the top three. Switzerland and France are ahead of us. And, you know, it's, when it's a percentage of GDP, a lot of the countries are really concentrated at the top. You know, it's generally somewhere between 10 to 12 percent of their GDP. Uh, when we look at it, even in terms of per capita spending, we're, um, I, I believe we're ranked eighth. Uh, sorry, ranked 11th uh, in terms of per capita spending. But again, this is ranked 11th out of 29 countries with universal health care. Um, so clearly, Regardless of the indicator that we're looking at, we're above the OECD average. The question then becomes, if it's not a spending problem, 
um, you know, why is it that that money is not translating in terms of doctors, beds, um, wait times, um, clinical performance? Can we just come up with a hypothetical patient named Joe, a hypothetical Canadian patient named Joe, who today on the 24th of September 2017 isn't feeling well? And Joe is going to go to the doctor tomorrow, and Joe is going to find from the doctor that it's time to pursue why he's not feeling well. And over a period of time, Joe is going to be diagnosed with a very serious, potentially life-threatening illness. How, how poorly is Joe going to fare within the – I hope this is a fair question – how poorly is Joe going to fare within the Canadian universal system vis-a-vis one of the more effective systems that you investigated? Well, you know, I'd say it depends on the procedure. Um, Canada does quite well when it comes to crises, when it comes to something that is immediate and life-threatening, but so do a lot of other countries. But really where it starts to feel really, really badly is when it comes to something that will not immediately kill you, Um, whereas other countries are able to deliver treatment to those patients as well in a timely manner. Um, I'll give you two statistics that are very interesting, um, you know, in this regard. Uh, One of them is from another study study that we do, which is called Waiting a Turn, which surveys physicians across Canada every year. Um, And, you know, some people have issues with with the methodology and et cetera, et cetera. But the fact is we've been doing this for over 20 years. And what we found is that the last year that we did it was actually the longest wait time that we've ever recorded um, in the history of our survey. Um, So regardless of whether uh, people think, you know, whether it's, you know, the 20 weeks that we recorded or whether it's actually 15 weeks or 25 weeks, um, the fact is, during the history of doing this survey, uh, the wait time has more than doubled. Uh, and importantly, physicians are also telling us that their patients are waiting longer than clinically reasonable. More than doubled? Inter- wait times yeah, more than doubled, okay. They, they have more than doubled. Wow. In 1993, it was 9.3 weeks, uh, and this year it was 20 weeks. Um, the, the other really interesting statistic that we have is that as time has gone by, we've started to get some good um, idea about how Canada compares with other countries with universal health care uh, on things like wait times. And what we find is, you know, we have to restrict ourselves to about 10 countries because we, we don't actually have comprehensive data for more than that. But we're routinely at the bottom of the pack uh, in terms of those 10 countries. So uh, the Commonwealth Fund recently uh, conducted a study which was looking at uh, the wait time uh, to get a consultation with a specialist. Uh, I believe um, more than 30% of uh, Canadian, res- Canadian respondents said that they had to wait uh, longer than two months. Now, in Germany, that number was only 3%. Um, in, in France and, and in, in Switzerland, those numbers were, again, actually quite low. Um, and the thing is, you find exactly the same thing when it comes to uh, the wait time for uh, elective surgery. In Canada, the percentage of patients who had to wait more than four months for elective surgery um, was 18%. Compare that to Germany, no patient actually reported having to wait that long. Compare that to France, 2% of patients have uh, reported having to wait that long. In the Netherlands, only 4%. So the thing is, we're, we're getting we're getting a lot of confirmation that what we have in this country is not a is not a result of the fact that we have a universal healthcare system. These are all universal healthcare systems. Uh, neither is it a consequence of not paying enough. These you know we're ranking amongst the top spenders as well. But for some reason, the choices that we made and how we structured our universal healthcare system has led to a situation that we have some of the lowest ratio of doctors per capita. We have the lowest uh, availability of beds amongst all these countries, and we routinely rank at the bottom of the pack when it comes to access uh, to resources. So it's it's a question of what's actually going on. Why isn't the money translating? So flexibility as far as getting the system to work more uh, appropriately and more quickly is very limited given what you just told us. 
Yeah, I mean, we're, we're not seeing it in Canada. I mean, I, one of the questions that I, I routinely get asked is, um, you know, why why haven't things changed? Why, why are we still waiting so long? A lot of people now know that we have a high-cost system, that we don't have enough resources, that patients are waiting. And unfortunately, the, the answer is because nobody's actually made any significant policy changes over the last 20, 30, 40 years. Um, we, we tend to keep doing the same thing over and over again, trying to throw money at the problem and expecting it to go away. And what we found is that while it works as a Band-Aid solution for a couple of years, we end up with the same problem because the, the structural issues, the incentives that, that, that we face, the options that we have in our country um, are exactly the same as they were before. And importantly, it's very, very different from what these other countries with the universal health care are doing. Mr. Barua, thank you very much for the time. It's uh, FraserInstitute.org, and fascinating and critically uh, important because if Joe gets ill today, our system should be able to take care of him better than it, than it apparently is going to. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, Bacchus Barua on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network from the Fraser Institute. When we come back, he's 17 years of age. His parents committed suicide. Mental health issues were involved. He contacted all 338 members of Parliament on his own. How many replied? Stick around. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. He's 17 years of age. His name is Noah Irvin. He lost both parents to suicide. His father was 40, his mother was 24. He contacted all 338 members of Canada's federal government. And the response rate was, frankly, terrible. Terrible. These people showed that their their, um, willingness to engage a young man in an important discussion, important for everybody in this country, was abysmal. And uh, Noah Irvin joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Hi, Noah. Hi, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? Not bad. Um, I just like to just to say, um, first off, thanks for having me on. But um, my father, he did not die of a uh, suicide. He died of a uh, prescription drug overdose. Okay, I I had it here as suicide. I'm sorry, Glenn. Thanks you for correcting that. So you contacted all 338 members of Parliament, and was this by mail, by email? How did you do that? Uh, it was by mail. So they got an actual letter. Yep. And in the letter, you said what to them? Uh, I urged them to, one, listen to my story, understand that it's not a unique story in this country, and unfortunately it's not a unique story. Thousands of Canadians have dealt with the same, if not similar, situations uh, as to mine. And I urged them and I challenged them to step up and start saving lives in this country because... Government inaction is a killer, and my parents are both examples of uh, what government inaction will do. Um, that was pretty well the, the gist of my letter. And you heard back from how many? Uh, Forty before media attention. Okay, so a lot of them were scrambled uh, trying to get back in touch with you since the media uh, attention. Yeah, so since media attention, I've received only 20, uh, but 20 in a month. Uh, is better than my entire uh, campaign of uh, my my entire call to action uh, uh, over the six months uh, ever generated. So, um. so Noah, of the forty who responded to you, 
How many of them actually wrote something back that was substantively what you expected or what you were asking for? And how many of them wrote back what might have been just a form template letter? Yeah, so um, that's a great question. So of the 40, I would say only about maybe 20 of those letters were actually something I was looking for. And of that, there might have been about six out of those 20 that were above and beyond what I was asking for. They were compassionate. They showed that they cared. Uh, but the really bad ones, they were really bad. Um, I'm actually looking at um, the Minister of Agriculture on this, uh, Lawrence um, Mulcahy. Mulcahy? Mm-hmm. I don't know how you say his last name. Um, McCulley, sorry. Um his uh, letter, his first sentence in the letter actually says, thank you for your letter concerning what you describe as a suicide epidemic in this country. So I guess the Minister of uh, Agriculture doesn't believe that we are in a crisis and doesn't believe that this is an epidemic. So uh, that's uh, some of the, uh, the, the poor correspondence that I received. Uh, um, but there were letters that went above and beyond what I was asking for, um, so they weren't all like this, but uh, certainly quite a few were, were this bad. And you pointed out that you're 17 years of age in the letter, yep. right? Yep. That uh, that, you, that you care about this, that you're involved in, in politics, and and you still got such a, an abysmal, abysmal response. So what you were asking them to do, as I understand, is to proactively become engaged in the issue of um, working on mental health issues and, and and finding as much of a solution as possible, or at least options, for people who have mental health issues and maybe looking for help or family members who are looking for help, and you got nothing. I mean, let's face let's essentially you got nothing. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I was stiffed by a lot of politicians in this country. And, um, you know, the one really disappointing thing is uh, we're often told as youth to become involved yeah. Uh, I became incredibly involved in the political process, and just because I was not a constituent, I was stiffed um, by the politicians of this country. What about the prime minister, who is constantly talking about youth involvement and how he's the youth minister? What What did you hear from Justin Trudeau? Um, up until media attention, there wasn't even a, uh, a peep that came out of the PMO's office. Uh, when media started asking the uh, prime minister's office, where my response was. I'm told I'm getting a response by mail. It still has not yet shown up. Um, and I was also informed that uh, this Friday I will be contacted directly from the Prime Minister by phone. So I was scrambling to make up for it. Yep. Did anybody, uh, did, I mean, did you hear, uh, I, I, I was going to ask you if you heard more from one political party than another, but that's not really important. As you come away, you tell me if it's important, we only have a few seconds, but as you come away from this, what do you want them to know? What do you want them to understand? And can you tell me in about 20 seconds, what do you want them to know? Well, I want them to know that they failed in their duty to uh, protect Canadians and, and their duty to uh, to respond to Canadians. They failed miserably, and I'm still waiting for responses if any of them are listening. Uh, the parties have my letter. You can get it. So uh, there's no excuse as to why you won't respond. 
All right. Noah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for doing what you've done in the memory of your parents and to protect other Canadians who are facing mental health issues. Uh, you and you I will much. stay in touch, too. All right? Yep. Thank you so much. Okay, Noah. Thank you. Noah Irvin. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. It's the anniversary tomorrow of Canadians Robert Hall and John Ridsdale being kidnapped by the Islamist ISIS-affiliated terror group Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines. And uh, Mr. Hall's family remains resolute in their demand for a public inquiry. They recently submitted a national online petition in this regard, and Canadians uh, were active with the uh, petition, and then they, it was submitted to the federal government. And the family did hear back, which I think is remarkable that that happened, because uh, Bernice Thomas, Robert Hall's sister, and Gord Bibby, Robert Hall's cousin, have not exactly been, uh, shall we say, overwhelmed with the, with the response from Ottawa. In fact, they've been largely ignored. Bernice, uh, good to speak with you again. How are you doing? Um, there's a saying, honest, horribilis. Horrible yes. year. Yeah. Yeah. Gord, good to speak with you again. Nice to be on your show again, Roy. Thank you so much. I wish we had, uh, I wish we could talk about a really responsive and responsible federal government response to what happened to two Canadian citizens. And uh, I wish we could be talking about a government having uh, been uh, involved and made a difference and, and made it possible for uh, your brother and cousin to return safely as uh, Australia did with uh, the Australian uh, kidnapping victim, Babu Sayef. We spoke uh, to on this program. You did as well just a couple of weeks ago. So the petition made its way to Ottawa. You heard back. How did that go? Well, um, first of all, the petition uh, closed in March of this year, 2017, uh, generally, with these petitions, the response is forthcoming within a month or so, uh, and we didn't hear, and we didn't hear, and we didn't hear any response, so we started pressuring the government again, um, and we're told that they would respond. Um, we, The sponsor of this, Gord Johns, Courtney Alberni, MP, brought it to Parliament on June 13th, which was the anniversary of my brother's murder. Um, and so we expected a quick response. They had 45 days to respond, which put it to July 28th. They didn't respond. Of course, it's the government's checks and balances. There was no consequence for not responding. And we just got the response on uh, last Monday, and it is literally uh, a copy-and-pasted version of the non-existent policy, and it's it's really just a copy-and-pasted version of platitudes. There's no nothing effective in it, and it's really, in our experience, all lies. What is it? Uh, in, what does it say? What's this policy supposed to assure Canadians of? Just in layman's well, terminology. You know, in one of the the, the lines in it, in, it says, in all hostage cases. Canada works closely with foreign authorities and its allies at every level to free Canadians. And I we know that didn't happen. Exactly. So 
there's the start of it, Roy. You know, it's uh, it's inherently false in our experience. It goes on with blather and lies about supporting the family and informing the family and wow. doing everything they possibly can. And in in it, none of it's true. It's just not true. It's just not true. What they tried to do, what they actively attempted to do, was keep your family quiet. Exactly. That was the that was the essence of their correspondence, wasn't it? Um, it was a, a veiled sort of underlying thing. I mean, that they told us all the time: do not speak about this. And I mean, they they've, they've uh, referred to this in their their response because it would put hostages at risk to speak to anybody. And and we were told, you know, as I've said to your listeners before, over and over and over again, don't share this with anyone, not your employers, not your co-workers, not your friends, not your family, not your extended family. Do not share anything about this kidnapping with anyone, which really held all of us hostage as well by the Canadian government because we had no support, we had no familiar support, we had no emotional support in any way, and it was all under this veiled threat that we would be putting my brother in danger. And and let's be clear, when you're kidnapped by ISIS, you're already in danger. All that happened here, really, over the nine months, is the government's heel-dragging amortized the anguish and terror and pain. I'll never forget the, uh, the email that I received from one of your family members the last mm-hmm. time we spoke. And she'd been uh, on the way to the store to get some groceries, as I recall. And she heard yeah. us uh, talk about what happened to your brother, and she had to go home. She just couldn't emotionally continue with her her journey, with her tasks. And here, I'm thinking of her and listening to what you're saying, Bernice. And what they were doing, it was they were... They were they were clearly doing nothing or almost nothing. And yet they're trying to make it appear as though they're proactively engaged on behalf of your brother. And would you please not say anything to anybody because that could jeopardize our mission to get your brother out. We now know that none of that was going on. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes, and and I mean, you know, I was just listening to your segment with Noah, and first of all, let me just say, Noah, we all know the government doesn't listen, but let me tell you, young man, you're very well-spoken, you're intelligent, and Canadians support you. Yes. So keep talking. I'd like to see uh, that young man go into politics. Exactly, because his, he's getting the same response we got, which is condescending, patronizing, and extraordinarily dismissive. Gord, your brother did a little digging um, as far as this correspondence that you received from the Prime Minister's office is concerned. Can you share with us what you found out? Well, it's under the signature of uh, Christopher Freeland, uh, who's the Minister of uh, Foreign Affairs. Um, the, the actual response, however, was written by uh, her secretary, uh, who is uh, a recent graduate of uh, the University of Toronto Trinity College, and uh, he has been on the job four months. So he's uh, so here we are. Uh, the the amount of work and effort that went into getting cobbling this uh, petition together, 
uh, getting the required signatures by uh, March 31st, and I think we had well over 500 signatures, which is the minimum. So, uh, and then, uh, as Bonice pointed out, uh, you know, we were the, the response dragged on. Uh, I just think it's uh, ridiculous that uh, you know here's our federal government uh, leaving such a response to a basically a rookie. Uh, yeah, somebody young. with four months on the job. That's right. That's right. With the BFA. Yeah. yeah. With, a, with a what? With a BFA. You know, like, come on. Oh, Bachelor of Fine Arts? Yeah. Yeah, that'd That's be right. it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, he had a Bachelor of Fine Arts. That would help. I'm sure that so, would help. Uh, yeah. So I, you know, Roy, I, I, I've come to the conclusion that based on the, the response that the government has given to family requests, uh, individual family requests, uh, extended family, immediate family. Uh, it has not been, as the response indicated, a priority. Obviously, it wasn't a priority when uh, John and Bob were, were held hostage. I mean, the, 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 the prime minister was in the Philippines when these two gentlemen were uh, being held hostage and tortured in the jungle. And the prime minister's glad-handing and the rock star, and he's in and out. I mean, I just don't understand it. Should I read this gobbledygook that you got back from the prime minister's office? Sure. So after everything that was done, the petition was very carefully put together, and it was there for Canadians to sign, and you were looking for an inquiry into what happened, right? Mm -hmm. And so the petition goes through to the federal government, and here is what the family received from Ottawa. A hostage taking. This is now. This is now supposedly to reassure that the petition has been received, has made an impact, and is being acted on. A hostage taking is a horrible and unimaginable ordeal for families of loved ones. Canada takes hostage takings of its citizens very seriously. Terrorist hostage cases are treated as a priority, and resources are mobilized accordingly with dedicated experts. In all hostage cases, Canada works closely with foreign authorities and its allies at every level to free Canadians and bring them home. Canada's response also includes support from trained negotiators and investigators, intelligence gathering and assessment, and consular support to families and to victims once released. The Government of Canada's policy against paying ransoms is long-standing. The Government of Canada is firm in its resolve to deny terrorists the resources they need to conduct attacks against Canada, its allies, and its partners. Furthermore, the payment of ransom creates greater incentive for terrorists to resort to hostage-taking, increasing the risks for Canadians traveling and working abroad, and thereby would endanger the lives of every single one of the millions of Canadians around the globe. It goes on, I'll just read a little more. Uh, when pursuing the safe release of a Canadian, the government always assesses possible options. That being said, the government of Canada will not disclose operational planning before, during, or after a case including on hostage rescue operations. To do so would jeopardize current and future efforts and put the lives of hostages and others at risk, blah, 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 blah. Nothing there to even suggest, nothing there to even make you feel, feel as though something significant had taken place. Really, it's just, here's a, as you said, here's our policy. We just, we just wrote it. Here's our policy, and it, and it conforms with the, we think it conforms with the news releases we let we let out, and um, if I'd received that, I think I'd just make you feel worse. Yeah, that's the problem. Well, there's 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 no closure on this issue no. for for the family, uh, Roy, and it's just you know, it, 
it's it's adding uh, frustration to the grief. It's just it's unimaginable, really. I admire you both and admire your family. You've gone through so much. You've experienced such a horrific loss. And and yet you're speaking publicly because you care about other Canadians and you want to make sure that what happened to your family is not repeated and repeated because of indifference in the nation's capital. I really admire you both so much. Thank That's you. Right. Thanks so much for, uh, for coming on with us. Okay. Thank All you. Right. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bernice Thomas and Gord Bibby on The Roy Green Show. They are remarkable people. You just think of the hell they've gone through. And the assistance they received really adds up to zero. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.